Hey. Hey. It's Mom Truth Friday. Sure is. People always want to know why are moms so tired. And if you're not a mom, you're probably looking at us like we're a big bunch of Sallies. Like really, you're tired? You know what I mean? Oh, especially you stay-at-home moms. All you do is just sit at home. Why are we so tired? We're tired because every single job we attempt to do gets literally sabotaged five times over. So you're doing one job five times. Imagine, just imagine that you're in charge of thinking about all these people that you have to keep alive. Not just keep happy, not just raise to be good humans. Not just give food to, no. but make sure that each one of those bodies doesn't die all day long. All day. Not only that, they have to use their words properly and they have to be functioning humans in this world. You also have to teach them how to walk, how to talk, how to eat, how to look you in the how eyes. How to sleep. How to sleep. Did you know you had to teach someone how to sleep? How to wipe their bum, how to brush their teeth, how to make their bed, how to brush their hair, how to do their hair. Okay, that's just the basic. And don't even think for a second that any of those tasks take one time. No, they take about 50. Wiping your butt takes years. Years, and then you have to clean those tiny people's clothes. That's one full-time job. Cooking, that is another full-time job. Then there is cleaning. That is a full-time job. Full -time Every time job. you organize or cook or do anything, two minutes later you turn around and the whole thing is thrown up again and you gotta do it again. Try sleeping. Doesn't exist. So no, then, then you're functioning on no sleep while you're trying to raise these people. Have you tried to raise a doctor or a lawyer? Huh? I challenge you to buy three <laughs> tiny baby piglets and try to get them dressed in a snowsuit while they're hungry and while they have to go to the bathroom. And then at the very last moment when all of them at least look decently fed and dressed, yes. you gotta look in the mirror and you gotta make sure you don't look like this. You have to have a job and work on top of all of that and have a relationship and do the sex regularly. <laughs> Are you exhausted yet? You know what we do all day? Everything. Oh, and on top of that, you don't ever hear what a good job you're doing. Imagine people yelling and screaming at you as you go through your day. You and know? then your husband comes home and he's like, gosh, you look tired. I oh, I don't know, how was yeah. it just like what sitting do, at your desk What do you mean? What do you wine? mean you don't want to do it? But when all of that is done and you lay in your bed and you're like, ah, your freaking brain starts spinning like crazy. So yeah. it's not even that you're physically tired, but you're mentally exhausted. About all the all stuff the you didn't do, about all the balls you dropped in the day. If you're a grandparent and you've been there, Tell them to have a nap. And moms, if you're feeling so freaking tired every day, you know what you need to do? <laughs> One day we'll be in retirement. They'll be gone and we'll be relaxing. Do that? Uh, you just remember that. This too shall pass. If you see a tired mom schlepping it down the street, hey, hey mama, you're doing a good job. Good job. I've been reading about the Sabbath. <laughs> and I thought, uh, boy, just in that one little two-minute vignette, uh, those ladies are literally hitting the nail on the head of what it feels like to raise children and to be just a human in a Western context of culture. And I got good news. The Bible has a lot to say about this. That that's really funny, right? And it's, you know why it's funny? Because it's true. But it's only funny like the first 13 times. And then eventually there's like, but wait a minute, how do I, how do I keep from frazzling myself out? Uh, if our culture has 
uh, if this is what our culture is saying, then I would dare say that uh, rest, that Sabbath, is defiance against the culture. It's punk rock. Like, it's let's resist. So in the book of Luke, chapter 6, we're going to talk about this for the next couple of weeks. I was actually on the way here this morning uh, thinking about how am I going to get all this into one sermon. I was going to rush this. And then I thought, well, how ironic would it be to rush a sermon about Sabbath, right? <laughs> so we're not. We're going to take our time. And we're going to breathe. And we're going to see what Jesus has to say. That whatever else is going on in this world, that we have the ability to be a safe haven, to be a quiet port, to be a place of safety, of refuge. Not just this building, but us and our own lives. So let's be punk rock this morning and defy our culture and look at how we can do it with way Jesus' own words in the book of Luke in chapter 6. In verse 1, he says, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. This would have been the equivalent of hitting the Culver's drive-thru in their culture. They're hungry, they're on the way, they pick it. But uh, here's the thing, in the Sabbath, their laws, their rules, strictly forbade this. And so, some of the Pharisees who were watching, because that's what they did, you know those critics that just sit and tell you everything you do wrong? But it's a whole other story. I've been on Twitter way too much this week. But the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, the temple, and took and ate of the bread of presence, the showbread. It was a worship thing in the temple which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And also, he gave it to those with him, to his men. And he said to them, the Son of Man, this is a very bold statement here. For those of you that have wondered, you know, because you, you, you can Google anything and find some crazy stuff. And those that say that Jesus never made any claims to divinity, that he was God, that's crazy talk. And you know, this is one of those statements. When he says the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, it made them angry because they knew exactly what he was saying. And then on another Sabbath, Luke is recounting, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. How big of a jerk do you have to be? The answer is a pretty big one. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here, and he rose and he stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to him, uh, at them, he said to, to him, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and the hand was restored but they, speaking of the scribes and Pharisees, were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, would you give us insight this morning as we breathe in your word and your wisdom for us and ask for your guidance that we could walk out of here today understanding rest at a deeper level than we came in understanding it in 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you've been online at all this week, you might have seen some of the, uh, the people who are apoplectic over uh, the Billy Graham rule. Do you know what I'm talking about? So this week, on uh, a news article surfaced about a political figure who practiced what was called the Billy Graham rule. Now, the Billy Graham rule was that this man would uh, not be in a room alone with a member of the opposite sex uh, for any reason, uh, which uh, blew a gasket online uh, over what was going on. And I ended up doing an interview on Friday uh, because a friend of mine is a reporter, and he knew that I had practiced this my own life uh, in the music industry before today. And just wanted to talk about why it's such a big deal. And we, we had a great conversation. And, and what I was thinking in terms of was that, like, I don't know that they understand the people that are angry. They're angry at the, 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 the system, but not the actual what, what is meant to happen. That there's these boundaries that this political figure put in place. There's boundaries that I put in place. If you have a dog, you've put a boundary in place. We have one of those little underground electric fences, which are really entertaining. Um, <laughs> Right? <laughs> but I'm not doing that because I want to be mean to my dog. I want to do it because I don't want my dog to get dead. You know, I mean, dogs will run off, especially, you know, you know Buford, you got a beagle. And those beagle, men that smell just take hold of them. <laughs> and they can't think, and they got to go. And so, and, and I, I know you guys have lost one. We're sorry. Um, we may have a moment of silence for Buford's beagle. Um, but the, the boundaries wouldn't be to hurt a, the beagle. The boundary is there to keep the beagle from running off. And when you've got a big farm like that, there's a lot of open. And so what ends up happening is the boundary that, that some people choose. I, by the way, it's not a rule, and it's not a regulation, it's not a policy, it's a procedure. It's just a boundary. And I don't say that everybody has to practice it. That's when it becomes law and it becomes rules and regulations. and policy. If I say, well, this is what God has convicted me to do, and now you have to do it then that's different, but that's not what Billy Graham wanted. In fact, what Billy Graham did, this was in the 1940s, because the tent preachers were running around the country and they were getting paid. Do you know what I'm saying? Passed the bucket, it was all cash, a lot of pressure, and you become real famous. And you know, So Billy Graham stepped back and said, okay, well, we need to start with, let's put some policies in place for how we're going to handle the money here. We want to make sure that we're accountable to it. We're not more than one person. It's what we do every Sunday here when an offering is taken. It's just a boundary that we put in place. I don't see who gives what. I don't want to. It's just a boundary we've put in place because I'm shallow enough to schedule my meetings if you give a big check. So if I don't know, I don't have to worry about it. Other pastors do it differently. That's the way the Holy Spirit has led them. You know, there's boundaries. That's what we're talking about. And so when I look at what Jesus is saying here with the Sabbath, the Sabbath was a boundary. But the gift, what the boundary was to do so the boundaries of money is to keep me from misusing God's money. The boundary of why I would never meet with a woman of the opposite sex is a boundary that says if in this culture, you know as well as I do, you don't even have to do something wrong. You just have to be accused of it. So if I have a boundary in place, it just protects. I love my wife and I love my children way too much. And so the boundary is to protect my marriage. The boundary is to create. The, the integrity is the, is the gift, right? The accountability is, is the tool. Rest is the gift. Sabbath is the tool. Do you, feel, do you see where I'm going with this? So Jesus, they put a boundary in place called Sabbath, and Jesus is basically 
not shooting them down even. He just starts talking to them about Sabbath itself and begins to apply what that looks like in their everyday life. And he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Phyllis, uh, who will be heading to Israel in two weeks, three weeks? Three weeks. She can hardly stay here. Pray that Jesus doesn't come back first because she wants to go to Israel one more time. The good thing is if Jesus comes back, we all get an all-expense-paid trip. So anyway, but, but Phyllis said that Sabbath in Israel, that when Shabbat happens, there's a siren that goes off on Friday at sundown. And here's what she described it as. It's like the city goes quiet in the way like it is in Middle Tennessee right before a snowstorm. Kroger has been pillaged. The bread is gone. But it's all done, and there's nothing else to do except wait for the snow. But that's the gift of Sabbath. We've, uh, on our little farm, we had a little real tall driveway going out of our, uh, our house, and, and it snowed. It's been a couple of years ago now, and we couldn't even get out because uh, we're, we're like poser rednecks. We didn't have a car with four wheel. Like, we couldn't get out of the driveway. But you know what that forced us to do? And I know if you're a type A, this might drive you crazy, but I kind of like when I think back on it, what Phyllis is saying is that it forces a rest on you that you couldn't get any other way. Everybody understands. I can't get there because I'm stuck. I can't, I can't even go to the pasture because I'll fall on my rear end. Everything's icy. We just, every, everything grinds to a stop for a gift of rest and for us to be able to hang out and watch Netflix on dial-up, which is not a good way to do that, by the way, but... If you live in the country, you know what I'm talking about. The gift of Sabbath. In fact, there's a, a, a Jewish author, a, a rabbi that I, that I read this quote that really, this is from a Jewish perspective of what Sabbath was meant to be, of the gift that God gave us. Think about the act of liberation it was in Deuteronomy when it talks about Deuteronomy 5. You were slaves now you are not, so take a day off. It's an act of liberation. It's an act of defiance. But listen to what, this is Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was a Jewish man, wrote. Sabbath is a foretaste of paradise. The Sabbath is a metaphor for paradise and testimony to God's presence in our prayers. We anticipate a messianic era if you're Jewish, you're still looking for that messianic era. If you're a believer, you realize that Jesus was Mashiach, that he was Messiah. You know we've already started the messianic era. So he waits for it. And here's what he's waiting for. And I think it's so astute because what he's waiting for is what we already have at our fingertips if we'll just accept it. So as we anticipate a messianic era that will be a Sabbath, and each Shabbat prepares us for that experience, unless one learns how to relish the taste of Sabbath, one will be unable to enjoy the taste of eternity in the world to come. What we saw in the little mom video, I could have played the same video for your work. And look, in, a, in an area like Middle Tennessee, there's all kinds of us in this room. There are those of us who would just be glad to have a job. There are those of us that hate our job. And there are those of us probably for the most part that are literally working at all expenses trying to just keep above water. But our relationship to work 
if your work is as a mother, if your work is as a mother and as work in the workplace, whatever that is, Jesus has a great gift for you called rest. And that's, we're going to talk about it for the next two weeks. We're going to talk about why do we need it? What is it? Where do we get it from? And then how do we do it? I think sometimes we'll hear a sermon, it's so ethereal, but then, well, that sounds great, but I don't know how to do that. That's, we're going to talk about that too. Jesus in verses 1 and 2, I think, gives us an indication, a glimpse, if you think about the implications of what he's saying, of why we need it, why everybody needs it. And if you're in this room and you're working and you're burning, you know, sleeping five, six hours a night and you just think you're doing it, I'm telling you, if Jesus said you need it, you need it. Not because he's a giant buzzkill, but because he knows how you're wired and he knows how you're made. And so he says on the Sabbath, this is verse one, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Again, they've stopped at the Culver's drive-thru, they got a butter burger. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? What they're saying was this, what they just did, reaping was one of the 39 rules in the halak. Is that what it's called, the halak? The, the rule book, one of the 39 rules that had to do with work that they weren't allowed to do. Why are you doing this? And my instinct initially would be to look at the Pharisees and say, I mean, Seriously? That's what you're worried about? Is him hitting those buttons? You know, like, and I, what made me think of it, I was, you know, the, hitting the buttons is if you go to Israel and you go to a hotel, there's going to be uh, uh, multiple elevators, and one of the elevators is called the Sabbath elevator. Have you ever been on an elevator when the kid hits all the buttons? Okay, that's the Sabbath elevator. Starting at sundown on Friday, it's programmed to automatically hit every floor because pushing a button is one of the forms of work that is forbidden on the Sabbath day. Now, I'm looking at that going, I'm not taking that elevator. I'm on the 14th floor. I'd take the stairs and get there faster. And so my little judgy mind would look at that and say, that is patently ridiculous. In the same way that someone might look at my... Billy Graham rule and say, that's patently ridiculous if you don't understand the story behind the story. And Jesus, interestingly enough, doesn't say to them, you guys are just being religious and legalistic and I can't believe how big a jerks you are. (laughs) No, he says something completely different. He says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I am what it's all about. And I am all about Sabbath. And maybe he looks at them and says, look, I'm not going to bust your chops on these individuals and things. And I would think for us that we literally are in the most workaholic culture in the history of the world. And I think we dare not thumb our nose at any effort, even if it's a misguided effort at bringing the rest that Sabbath brings to us. There's a writer, I, I shared this article with you a year ago, some of you might remember it, from Judith Shulovitz, who is a writer with the New York Times. Julie, Judith is a secular Jew. She wrote this uh, article back in 2003. And she grew up like a lot of Jews would in the New York area, uh, in the secular, and she sort of grew away from the synagogue and grew away, and she was in her life and her career, and she's blowing and going. Maybe some of you are that way this morning. You're in your career, and you've sort of, I'm going to do this without God. And 
And she writes this article, 2003, and it was Bring Back the Sabbath. And Judith, I think, understands inherently what it is that Jesus is promising about Sabbath, about why we need Sabbath. She writes these words, that my mood would darken until by Saturday afternoon, I'd be unresponsive and morose. Is that a New York Times article or what, if they use morose in it? My normal routine, which involved brunch with friends, and she goes on to say, it made me feel impossibly restless. I started spending Saturdays by myself, and after a while, I got lonely, and I did something that as a teenager, profoundly put off by her religious education, I could have never imagined wanting to do. I began dropping in on a nearby synagogue. And it was only much later, after I joined the synagogue and changed my life in a million other unforeseen ways, that I developed a theory about my condition. That if formerly I had suffered from the Sabbath, that now I was suffering from the lack thereof. She talks about the ample evidence that our relationship to work is out of whack. We all know this. But she says, let me argue instead on behalf of an institution that has kept workaholism in check, reasonable check, for thousands of years. Most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is not work. But the inventors of the Sabbath understood that it was a much more complicated undertaking. You cannot downshift casually and easily. She talks about that the, the reason why the Jewish Sabbaths were so exactingly intentional, that the rules did not exist to torture the faithful, they were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of the will, one that has to be bolstered by habit as well as by social sanction. She is saying that at the root of this, that our relationship with work as a society is so seriously out of whack that if you think you're going to get rested just by knocking off, you're monumentally naive. Michael Jackson died, uh, how many years ago, does anybody know? It's been a few years back. Michael Jackson had set out to, to set a world record, and the world record was in you know, the, uh, the center in, Lu in uh, London, he sell the most tickets, most shows. He never got to break that record, but he broke another world record inadvertently. Because if you remember right, he was taking propofol every night for 60 nights. And propofol puts you to sleep, but it doesn't let you sleep. You never enter REM rest, the deep rest. So the world record that he set was that for 60 nights, he went without REM sleep. He died of exhaustion. And I say that because it isn't just about sleep. You can still die whether it's physically or emotionally, you can burn yourself out sleeping even seven, eight hours a night. If you've ever battled depression, you know that sleeping can actually just be an escape, a crutch. Sleeping is important. REM sleep is a gift that God gave us. If you don't enter REM, you know that your, your cells, I'm about to burn the church down, your, your cells don't rebuild themselves and the healing doesn't take place. So sleep is incredibly important. It's one of the most crucial things that make us human. But that's not the rest that I think Jesus is talking about. I think Judith understands the rest when she writes these words. She talks about that when Sunday was still sacred, talking about her, her, bring, uh, her father being brought up in Budapest and 
the very cosmopolitan hometown that not only did drudgery give way to festivity, family gatherings, and occasionally worship, but listen to this. If you don't hear anything else today, remember this. The machinery of self-censorship shut down too, stilling the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. That Sabbath wasn't about just sleeping. That by, you can't do anything more at this point from now until tomorrow night, allowed and create an environment where I'm shutting down the eternal, internal murmur of self-reproach. And if you don't know what that is, you remember Rocky, this is, I'm about to really get my age. Remember Rocky? Okay, the first one, the only good Rocky movie there was. About to cause a church split, aren't I, over that? But but there's a moment in Rocky where he talks to Adrian. Yo, Adrian. Where's Adrian? There's an Adrian here, sorry. (laughs) That the reason he's got to do this, that he's got to run up the stairs in Philadelphia and the trumpets and all that, the reason he's got to do that is he says the the moment of the movie is, I got to prove that I'm not a bum. That was it. In the movie Chariots of Fire, now I'm really showing my age. There's a moment where the main character in Chariots of Fire says that in these 10 seconds, is the, uh, that's the only opportunity I'm going to get to prove that my worth for even existing is if I can run this race. The eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. A, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about a struggle with anxiety that I've had over the years and the, the heavy breathing and I got, you know, I'm like, it goes up and... And some of you, I got a lot of emails that day from people that were like, wow, I didn't know. I, I do too. But it starts with the question, which is what Rocky was trying to prove, is am I enough? Can I be enough if you know who I really am? The rest that Jesus talks about has a very little to do with physical sleeping and everything to do with quieting the eternal inner murmur of accusation from an enemy, you understand that Satan's main job isn't to tempt you, it's to accuse you. Diablo, the word, means accuser. And that voice and that soundtrack in your head, are you enough? Can you be enough? And that's it, that under, there's a deeper problem, it's, it's the work underneath of the work. That that work will drive a man to insanity to try to make as much money as possible, to try to rise as far as I can on the corporate ladder. It'll do the same in a, in a woman's mind to try to get her to be enough for her children. That we'll scan Instagram and see, well, if I can only do this and I can only do that, and then I, I gotta keep them from dying and I gotta... And in our modern setting, it is in the same in the career world because a lot of women are in the career world too and I celebrate and congratulate you on that. And that thing, that trying to be enough to prove yourself with your work, it'll never be enough. The reason that we need it is that you can take a vacation and it still won't solve the eternal, internal murmur. We, we pretty much, I'm terrible at vacations. We grew up in a uh, non-vacationing world, my wife and I both. Now, you understand that a vacation and a family trip are not the same thing. You understand, right? I'm just sorry, I'm just true. 
you know, we drive to North Dakota for like a thousand miles, tie our kids to a chair. Any place else in society, that's actually illegal. But you can tie your child to a chair and go drive to Minnesota. And you get in there and you're hanging and you're trying to figure it out. And I go to Nebraska and I'm trying to just not, you know, it's like you're trying to disarm a bomb sometimes in the family. And I don't want to clip the wrong wire or the whole family thing goes down. That's not rest. That's not a vacation. But there are vacations where, well, actually, I, I really do want to talk about I, just some ideas that I've been tossing around of what it really means to rest. But even if, but if you're going to the beach, by the way, I'm not very good at the beach um, just because I, I get bored. I'm sitting there, and Shannon loves it. Like, that's, that's rest for her. She can knock out three, four books right at the beach. I'm like, you know, like literally fidgeting, and I can't. By, by the way, fly fishing for me, if you got a little bit of the ADD at all, fly fishing, holy war, that is, because you're constantly, it's like a giant fidget that fish come out of. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I did that last year, and I literally, I lost track of time. I can't even remember the last time I've lost track of time before that. Sorry, getting ahead of myself. But that answers the physical rest, but it doesn't answer the internal, eternal murmur that no vacation can cure. Are you enough? What if they really know? What if you actually Instagrammed your real life and not the, the, the fun one? And can you still be enough? And I have great news. Yes. That Jesus came to silence the eternal, internal. And that's why, where we get it. So that's what, you know, why it, you know, we need it. And where we get it is he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And he was, uh, those who were with him, he entered the house. This is verse four of God. And he took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful. He's referring to 1 Samuel 21. When David and his men were running for their lives, and they entered the, the temple, and they made basically sandwiches out of the showbread, which was completely and strictly forbidden. Now, the implications here are fascinating to me because what he was saying to them was, you know what, in a pinch, you can set this, this law aside. He, the David, the, God nowhere ever says that David was wrong for doing that. He could set this one aside. Nowhere in scripture does it say, I know you were in a hurry, so you committed adultery, totally cool, because I, you were in a pinch. I know you killed the dude, but you were in a hurry, so no problem. Nowhere does it say that because there's a difference between the moral law and the ceremonial law. The moral law, when some people, we hear people talk about the law, oh, I hate the law, it's all rules. There's a little bit of me, it's like, well, which one didn't you want? Like the killing one, or was it the stealing one that was too much? Like a, but it's mostly because you just didn't understand there's a difference between the moral law and the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law, which would have included things like uh, not eating the showbread, were provisional. The Sabbath was provisional. And provisional is simply a theological way of saying it actually pointed to something that was to come that would fulfill it. Jesus said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. It was provisional. And here I am. I'm all about rest. And I'm all about you getting that rest. And here's how. I think it would help us to understand what rest I'm talking about. Not just sleeping. I know I've told you that sleeping is important. Eight hours of sleep is important because of REM. But that's not what he's talking about. The rest that he's talking about, I believe, is honestly, to understand it, you have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter one. That in Genesis chapter one, God created the earth 
and it was good. And then on the next day, God created, uh, and it was good. And you know what I'm saying? So in six days, at the end of every day, he said, it's good. And on the seventh day, he rested. You understand he wasn't tired, right? I think we all know that, but just in case. So why would he rest? To set a model for us? Yeah, I mean, there's an argument to be made that he's... I think that he rested, and in the, why he rested is a clue for us of why we can rest and the rest that Jesus came to give us. Because at the end of the day, he said, it's good. There's nothing else to do. By the sixth day, it's very good. There's nothing else to do. The rest that Jesus talks about is being utterly satisfied with what is done. There's nothing else to do. Two thousand years ago, Jesus Himself from a cross, writhing and restless. Isaiah fifty-seven says that there's no rest for the wicked. Second Corinthians five twenty-one says that He who knew no sin became sin for you and I, so that you and I could be viewed as the righteousness of God. He on the cross was writhing. There was no rest because He took on wickedness. No rest in that, so that you and I then could be imputed unto us righteousness to have the rest because when he said on the cross it is finished it is done it is complete and those of you those of us who would believe on that can receive that work not on our record but on his record not on what we do but what he did in our current culture there's this thing right now where you were already good, okay? So Jesus didn't die to become sin so that you could, this is really happening. Some of you don't know this, others of you do know this, and some of you might even believe this. But the idea is that I am already good, and my journey as a believer is just to understand and to, just to realize that I'm already good. Jesus kind of shoots that down when he says, oh, so I appreciate that you didn't murder, but if you even call your friend a fool, that you are the same. So you didn't commit adultery. Congratulations. If you've even thought and looked upon a woman lustfully, it's the same as if you did. He, what he was really saying was not that we, he was just, there's no, you can't be good enough for that. So the progressive Christianity idea, I really wanted it to be true, but Jesus didn't. So, so what do we do? Now, on the other side of that scale, in religious circles here in America, a lot of us are really good Muslims and we don't even know it. And that's that if you are good enough, so it's not that you're already good, it's that you can be good enough. And if I'm good enough and I do enough good things, then I can be accepted as righteous. And Jesus sets the standard impossibly high because it is impossibly high. And so we are hopeless except that Jesus who knew no sin became sin, that every sacrifice, Adam, who an animal died to clothe them. Abraham, a sacrifice was provided. Moses, the, the story all points to, that's the scarlet thread that runs through, that you and I, who could never be good enough and who were not already good enough, that when we believe we are good enough, because now he looks at you, he looks at you, Ashley, my beautiful daughter, and says, you're good enough. Because I see Jesus in what you did. I'm not looking at your record. I'm looking at his. 
And that, and I believe that alone, will shut down the internal, eternal murmur of self-reproach and self-censorship of beating yourself up. All the stuff in the world, fly fish all you want to, but if you don't first believe why we need rest, what rest is, where it comes from, which is Jesus, if we don't start with that, we never deal with the ultimate inside of the hate that you feel towards yourself. When I think back to those moments of when I have experienced the anxiety rolling up, it it always came back to I was trying to do something to try to carry a load that I was never meant to carry. That I was trying to protect my own identity. I was trying to make sure you didn't know who I really was. And whenever I find myself there and I'm listening to the voice of the eternal, internal murmur, we have an opportunity to listen to our hearts or speak to them. I was doing it this morning while I was praying. I was kind of like, oh man, am I getting all this stuff done? I don't know, I got all this. 46 years old, you'd think I'd have it figured out, but I begin to preach to myself the gospel, taking hold of what is already mine to begin with. And I hope that you will do the same I do believe that there are practical things we can do. I, I think that how much Sabbath time should you take? Probably more than you already are. The Sabbath principles, I mean, you're, some of you are in college right now, so you're working hard, and you're, how do I do this? I'm, I've got a baby that won't shut up. Like, how do I, you know? I believe that there are seasons of work and seasons of rest. We're gonna talk about all of that next week. But if you don't know that you are perfectly loved, perfectly accepted all the rules and regulations and policies and procedures in the world will just look like a giant Sabbath elevator stop it on every floor let's take a step back this week and allow the truth of what Jesus came to do to be Lord of the Sabbath that he pointed to it Hebrews chapter 4 the the last scripture I want to share with you as he talks about an eternal rest that he wants those of us to enter into. A rest that is so much better than the Sunday afternoon nap. A rest that Jesus came to give you. You know, even on a Sunday, especially on a Sunday, we can get all caught up. I mean, you have the worship band, they're working really hard, they gotta get this and the the timer's going off and Darren's staring at them because they're going past or whatever. But to take a step back and even in worship to rest and that I'm good enough because of what Christ did for me, because of what he did for you. Would you, let's stand and pray, and today, walk out of here, striving for that rest. Anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. This week, let's rest from that eternal, internal murmur, and the moment that voice rises up, shut it down by preaching the truth to it because of what Christ did. And we're going to talk about this next week and then into Easter. And by the way, after Easter, man, I've just been really praying about it, that, you know, this movie, The Case for Christ, is coming out. I just came back from a North African country where we literally had to make a case for who Jesus was 
to a group of people who've been reading the same Old Testament I've read and never saw that Jesus was prophesied 380 sometimes and was all fulfilled in one man. That was big news for a Muslim. It might be big news for you. So for the weeks starting Easter and after for that month, we're just going to build a case for Christ. You got questions? Awesome, because Jesus has answers. Never shipwreck your faith on the questions. Get the answers and let the chips fall where they may. But for today, breathe. If you're in high school and you feel this enormous pressure because you're trying to get this good grade and you made a, I mean, some of you, you get a B and either you are like apoplectic because I got a B and I got to get this because I'll never get the scholarship. Just breathe. That's your heart preaching to you. Let Jesus preach to your heart. Start with Hebrews 4. Go to 2 Corinthians 5. Go to Romans and preach the gospel to yourself. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the rest that you've given us. Oh, I'm so grateful. Would you today give us a real reality check of how we can end from the ceaseless striving. Not the day off, but an actual rest from you. Lord, I want us so bad. I want me so bad. I want my children. I want all of us to be able to take hold of this. That in the craziness of Middle Tennessee, that we don't participate in crazy, we are a place of refuge and peace. Anyone that comes through our doors, can we be that for them? Any doors that we enter, could we just be a literal mobile Sabbath rest for others? We believe that you've done it for us. We're so thankful for it. It's in your name that we pray. Jesus' name, the nature, because of who you are and what you did, that we can pray. Amen.